Up next, British Detroit journalist Jenna Brooker joins Authentically Detroit to discuss her explosive story on how one of Detroit's most powerful families is displacing Eastside residents. But first, this week for Hot Takes, Donna and I discuss license plate readers and whether or not the way Detroit tows cars with outstanding tickets violates citizens' constitutional rights. Keep it locked. Authentically Detroit starts now. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroiters rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that ask the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters. For Detroiters. Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the WDET studios. We are a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I am Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. It's going to be time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. This week, we have Jenna Brooker of Bridge Detroit joining us. How is everybody doing? Jenna, how you doing? Good to see you in the studio. Good. Thank you so much for having me in here. It's really exciting. Yes, it is exciting on this cold, crisp day in the city of Detroit. Yeah, well, I'm happy to make it out, you know, after everything's on Zoom and on the phone. I know. It's good to see you in 3D. I'm always happy to see you in 3D. Hey, I want to tell you, you're doing a great job at Bridge Detroit. Thank you. I Loving appreciate Loving your that. articles and your the perspectives that you bring and surface here in the city of Detroit. It's much needed. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Donna, you on the phone today. You Are you yeah. where it's cold? Where you at? Uh, I'm calling in from the Big Easy. I'm in uh, New Orleans. It's about 80 degrees. Um, so oh, she's rubbing it in, cold. too. I'm, I'm sorry. My bad. <laughs> it's, it's warm. <laughs> I have to tell you, I had to get up really early, and I have not really had an opportunity to enjoy this too much. Um, but it, it's been a good day. I'm really excited. We're going to spend the week here with um, um, organizations that are funded by enterprise communities, as well as some of the funders and some of our, our partners. In the city of Detroit, so we're going to have a great time um, really connecting with our partners in New Orleans and seeing what we have in common 
and what's different and hopefully, you know, sharing some best practices. So you work and I thought you were take. I thought this was a pleasure trip. I should have known. <laughs> I will be back on a pleasure trip. I've only been here three times. Um, the first was for the Junior Olympics in 2005, right before Katrina. Um, I went earlier this year for business, and I'm here this time. But I think that um, Chandra McMillian, who planned the whole thing, did um, schedule some time for fun. Oh, so that's going to be great. going on a dinner cruise tomorrow. I- I'm looking forward A dinner cruise. Oh, y'all cruise. so yes. fancy. Right? Oh, my know, gosh. Right? The yes. funders take y'all on a dinner cruise. <laughs> Tell them to take me next time. I absolutely love New Orleans. I've only been one time, but it was, you know, a transcendental, transcending moment for me just going because right, you have family here right well my paternal grandmother my whole paternal side is from new orleans and so i there i do have family there still uh and so it, it felt like you know a home that i didn't know i had it was so cool it was so cool seeing so many folks but, that look like my people <laughs> so before we get the hot takes i promised charity dean i would bring up that um she said that we are representing authentic voices, real people in Detroit, not just the east side. Uh. She, to, uh, she said, wait a minute, I'm on the west side, you're representing me too. Oh, God, <laughs> well, that's so that cool. Up. Well, it you know what, cool, right? Char- because Charity Dean has requested, and we have so much love and respect for Charity. Charity, we are we we are willing to rewrite our intro line, okay, just for you, <laughs> just for you, Charity Dean. Uh, for those of you who don't know, check out uh, Charity Dean's uh, new coffee shop in the Grand Mount Rosedale neighborhood. It's called Rosa, and check out uh, her the organization that she founded, the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance. She's doing some amazing things. Look you at us getting the shout outs. Doesn't early. have children, right? Right. right, and she she's also a mother and a wife. And a wife. It's, um, she she is a slacker, but other than that, you know. Yeah, she's she a major so slacker. Like, major she's, slacker. She's a major slacker. You know, do something, Charity. Um, anyway, just joking. <laughs> Charity, do something with your life. <laughs> All right, y'all, it's time for hot takes. This hot take, Detroit's proposal for licensed plate readers could get you towed. This is a story by my colleague Malachi Barrett at Bridge Detroit. So, the Municipal Parking Department is seeking approval of a $1.3 million contract to replace camera systems that capture the license plates of parked cars to determine whether a ticket should be issued or if the vehicle should be towed. It's called the Parking Scoff Law Program. It allows for the city to impound vehicles registered to a person with, catch this, six or more unanswered parking violations. So to that, there are about 5,105 vehicles with such violations, according to the city. And the majority of those violations, which average to be about 54%, are registered to Detroit addresses. Though vehicles registered to addresses outside of the city, they owe more money. So um, city officials said 25 of the 38 automatic license plate readers in the city have been in use since 2012 and are in need of replacement. Okay, the parking department will be unable to enforce parking violations to scaff law violators without the new readers, according to this report that this, that was commissioned by the city council. So listen, the fee schedule, unpaid parking tickets, unpaid parking tickets increased to sixty five dollars after 30 days. Y'all know it well because y'all get this stuff in the mail. Individuals with vehicles registered in another state are subject to a ninety five dollar fine. And if tickets go unpaid after 30 days, fines start at one hundred and fifty in parking and handicapped spaces, which increases to 
to $170 after a month. So, all right. So the municipal, the municipal parking department mails a warning notice. Y'all get these 15 days after the person receives their sixth ticket explaining their, that, explaining that their vehicle could be immobilized or impounded. The offender then has seven days to pay their ticket. Enroll in the payment plan or challenge the parking ticket. If 30 days go by with no contact, the parking department sends a final notice and adds another $25. After that, it's fair game for the city to take action and tow your car, whether you are parked there legally or illegally. Right. In order to release the vehicle, the owner has 21 days to either fully pay their tickets or request an administrative hearing. The owner could permanently lose their vehicle if they do nothing to resolve the situation after 21 days because it is considered abandoned under the law. Residents with vehicles registered to Detroit addresses are eligible for a half off discount on parking tickets. To receive that discount, residents must sign up with the city on the city's website. The reduced fine only applies if drivers have one unpaid ticket and if they pay the fine within five days. So much going on. So many questions. I know that one of the questions was asked if these license plate readers would be feed information to uh, the Detroit Police Department. Um, and the uh, parking uh, director said that that will not be the case. Donna, what say you? Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the specific reasons that the parking director, who's the person I know, Keith Hutchins, what's up, Keith Hutchins, I'm talking about you. Um, good guy, but one of the things he t- he's talking about is the um, opportunity to tow vehicles and the fact that, you know, um, it's important that the, the city collect on these um, tickets and the way they want to do it is through um, towing cars. And, you know, we have a habit of doing this when the city is trying to address what it considers to be unpaid bills. We shut off water. We take houses and other properties uh, for tax foreclosure. And we take vehicles. And so it's interesting. You have 21 days. At least if your house is behind in taxes, you have three years. But in this instance, you have 21 days to make up for parking tickets. And the thing is, the people who can't get their cars out in 21 days are not going to be people who are uh, major earners downtown who just were neglectful and chose not to pay. We're talking about poor people, people who have limited income and are going to be really challenged by this law. Um, So I think that it it reminds me of Bernadette Atuahene's article, Predatory Cities, where she compares the um, real estate foreclosures in Wayne County to um, all of the fines and fees and tickets that people get in Ferguson, Missouri, and the fact that city government actually builds these fines and fees into their budget in order to keep the, the wheels turning instead of really having an appropriate taxation system. And in this instance, I'm not talking about Detroit, I'm talking about the state and federal taxation to support Detroit and the people who live here. So I think it's ridiculous. Um, And then uh, just a couple things. Um, Mm -hmm. Last year, I think it was, um, I don't know if everybody remembers that there was a Supreme Court decision in July of 2020, actually not last year, where the Supreme Court unanimously held in Raffaele versus Oakland County in a Michigan law that allowed local governments to keep the entirety of the proceeds of sales of real property arising from tax foreclosures, mm-hmm. even when those proceeds exceed the amount of the underlying deficiency, interest, penalties, and fees, was an unconstitutional taking of property. Mm-hmm. In fact, the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution has an actual clause, the takings clause, that no, nor shall private property be taken 
for public use without just compensation. And if taking a house violates that after three years, and Lord knows I'm completely opposed to that, 21 days and the, the, the tow company gets to keep your car, uh, your car is converted to private use, and I'm sure that there are people who have tickets worth $800 and cars worth $5,000 who are losing $4,200 in value to a law that is unjust. And then I um, researched a little bit further, you know, because the question is, is this legal? And um, the state of Michigan does have a Michigan car towing law. In the Michigan car towing law, there's absolutely nothing mentioned about towing or removing a vehicle without owner's consent, notice or requirements. There's nothing in there that speaks to losing your car, having your car towed for fines. In fact, the closest thing is a provision in the towing law or a provision in the, the motor vehicle code that speaks about abandoned vehicles. Yeah. Abandoned vehicles that are not reclaimed after 21 days are um, subject to um, loss. But this is not a case where the vehicle was abandoned. It's a case where the city of Detroit wants to be able to drive down the street, whether somebody's paid their parking fees or not, um, see that ticket and take that car. And the final thing I want to say about this, because I know it's happened to people who I know and care about, is when they're looking at your license plate, they're not just looking at your car. If any other car has been registered to the owner of that vehicle in the past 10 years, they'll take it and you have to pay all of those tickets off. So we're not talking about what did you do last year. And the final, final thing I'm going to say is that $45 is the starting price for a ticket, and that is higher than almost any municipality in the United States. It's one of the Thank you, bankruptcy. residues, exactly, of bankruptcy, <laughs> where they were like, oh, let's increase parking fees. That's the way to balance the budget. Um, we keep on balancing the budget on the backs of poor people and calling it justice, and it's not. Um, remember the driver's fees, driver responsibility fees that cause people to lose driver's licenses all over the state. Well, now you can get your driver's license back, but you won't have a car. <laughs> Detroit <laughs> residents with six or more unpaid tickets owe a total of $1.7 million, while parking scoff laws with addresses outside the city owe $1.9 million. The city of Detroit issued 154,717 parking tickets between January and August just this year. And just over half of that has been paid for a total, get this, $4.3 million. But another $5.2 million in unpaid tar- parking tickets, including the scoff law offenders, is still owed to the city um, as of the beginning of September. This is this is really interesting. But, you know, the other interesting piece in this article is that they talked with uh, one of the lawyers at the Detroit Justice Center, yeah. uh, Eric Williams. We know Eric Williams. He's the managing attorney yeah. with the Detroit Justice Center. Said, And he said this, the, the cameras don't seem problematic so long as they're not concerned or, or connected to police databases or used to track movements of Detroiters. He said, quote, surveillance technology becomes particularly problematic when there aren't clear limitations on what is collected, how it is used and how it is shared. If you're talking about data that is being collected when people aren't engaging in anything that should normally trigger government intervention, like walking down the street, it's personally identifiable. And there are clear policies and practices in place to prevent it from being misused. That's when surveillance becomes a problem. But I would, I would, I would go a little bit further and say that we have 
violence surveillance in the city of Detroit. If, if this kind of surveillance is going to take uh, my my vehicle and we need cars to get around in the city of Detroit, right? We don't have a reliable I mean, public transit system. Yeah. That kind of surveillance is violence. I, I was really disappointed in reading that quote from Eric. I think that it just speaks to the fact that he is so focused on green light and the surveillance of people that he's not looking at the consequences to people who lose their cars mm. because that's a justice issue. And unfortunately, you know, we didn't have a chance to have that, um, you know, we need to sit down with Eric and help him understand the justice issue of people losing their cars. I mean, and didn't we just have two, not one, but two city council people convicted for crimes in association with towing companies? Isn't there a towing scandal in the city of Detroit? Brewing right still. Now? I think we're, st- we're still, on, yes. We're still in the, well, I don't remember. We're the still in the throes of it. Throes of it. So when you look at towing abuses, when you look at the fact that the fees that tow companies charge are too high, to want to ramp up enforcement and give more money to these tow companies um, is just outrageous to me, especially when you are impairing the ability of Detroit citizens to work, to take their children to school, and to function as responsible citizens in a city that doesn't have adequate public transportation. So when you're talking about taking people's cars, you're talking about taking more than just a vehicle because, again, because of parking, we'll go get it back. Uh, yes, exactly. Because, because of, park, of parking, we're taking people's cars because they they park somewhere. There's people out here who simply cannot afford to pay forty five dollars when they get the ticket, oh, and then it's sixty five dollars, and then it's one hundred and fifty dollars. If you want more people to pay the tickets, you know the city of Gross Point doesn't charge that for tickets. The city of Birmingham doesn't charge that for tickets. Southfield doesn't charge that for tickets. Detroit charges more for ticket prices than any municipality in the metropolitan region, in the poorest city in the state. And that's because we have predatory practices of trying to generate money from ticket sales because, again, we're struggling. But this isn't the way to do it, especially not when we are giving away $60 million in tax abatements to corporations that are billionaires. Um, Because if you added up every single ticket that everybody owed, it would not amount to the $60 million that we just gave away and said it was, you know, for the good of Detroit. Well, is, is the city Detroit, do you do you think the city is desperate for this five or six million dollars that they would collect on you know like is I think and what are they I gonna do with the structural. car sell them auction it's them just, off it's just a structural thing you know it's, it's how we structure our government Wayne County would have gone uh, been in the red you know you can't be in the red as a municipality in Michigan or a county in Michigan Wayne County would have been in the red for several years if not for tax foreclosures it's what balances the budget. And so when you look at the impact and the need for these fines and fees to close little areas of the budget, and it's not just that, um, you know, you have people who are having their houses ticket and other types of what I would call nuisance laws that are being enforced, again, on vulnerable populations. And the city says, if you're a Detroit resident, you can do all of these things to have your ticket cut in half. And that's cool because you always have to work twice as hard when you are a low-income resident, to get half the benefit as somebody else takes for granted in the communities where they live. Donna, so I, is, I'm, I'm wondering, though, is we, so I want to say that the, 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 parking, the, the parking people already drive cars with this kind of technology. It's um, old. Yeah, but it's, it's old. So I, we, we got to go. We be able, 
I'm sorry, they want to be able to do it more quickly. They want to be able to take people's Yeah, cars because this isn't this isn't any new rules, guys. This is what is currently happening. We're going to be following this. And hey, Keith Hutchins, city's parking department director come on authentically detroit listen if you have topics that you want to discuss on the podcast hit us up on our socials at authentically detroit on facebook instagram and twitter or you can email us at authentically detroit at gmail.com listen we're going to take a quick break we'll be right back keep it locked Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engaged Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to make that dream a reality. Located inside the Stoudemire, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Listen, this week, Donna and I wanted to discuss a story that came out of Bridge Detroit at the end of September. The Maroon family, one of Detroit's most powerful families, have been displacing residents on the east side. We decided that in order to best discuss this subject, we needed to connect with none other than the author of the story herself, Jenna Brooker. Jenna, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you so much. All right, really excited um, to, you know, to dig in to this story. Savannah Lewis, a 92-year-old woman who had been in her home for 60-plus years, um, is the focal point of this story. Tell me how you found out about her and what, what is the story exactly? So I first became aware of this issue when Andrew Bashi, an environmental lawyer from the Great Lakes Environmental Law Center, said that he had been receiving calls from residents in the Cadillac Heights neighborhood over the last few months saying that they were being intimidated into moving. Savannah Lewis was one of them. So I connected with Miss Lewis and she told me that in May, a representative from a company owned by the Maroons knocked on her door and offered her 90,000 for her home and gave her three days to decide. And wait, what's So somebody knocks on the door. Paint this picture for us. You're at home. You're doing whatever. La di la la la. Someone knocks on your door and say, "Hey, um, we are with whomever, whatever, whatever company, Crown Enterprises or right. whatever maroon affiliated company. We want to buy your house for ninety grand. You got three days to decide, and then thirty days to move out if you decide to take the deal. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and in some cases they just left these offer letters on people's doors mm-hmm. with no contact. Right. Okay, keep going. Yeah, and so uh, she doesn't want to move. She's been in this house for, you know, like you said, over over 60, 60 years. Yeah, right. And she has poured her heart into this community. She was president of the Block Club Association, won numerous awards for community service in the neighborhood, but the neighbors around her have all taken the deals, and so she feels like, you know, she's going to be the only one left on this block and it's not safe for someone her age to be staying there alone. So she's going to have to move. All right. And what are what are the plans that Crown has for this area? They're buying these houses, I'm assuming, to demolish them to make way for what? They, you know, haven't confirmed. They recently constructed a asphalt facility, a concrete facility. 
that began operation in September, but they said that beyond that, they don't have any concrete, concrete, concrete plans. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have any concrete plans for development beyond the plant. Um, but they want to buy up all these parcels of land to complete this sort of like triangle in the neighborhood that they already own. Mm. They already owned a significant amount of land in the neighborhood. And they mm-hmm. said that they want to buy up this land to prevent trespassing and uh, blight. But, you know, on mm. the other hand, yeah. residents like Miss Lewis are saying that they were taking care of these lots, actually, that were owned by the that, Baroons. Oh, ex- that's the story and of so I, many people's lives. Go ahead, Donna. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know what? I have to be honest. Um, there... The part of this came from the sale in 2018 um, deal with Fort Motor Company for the sale of Michigan Central Depot. Um, that's how they got part of the land. And then part of the land, I think, um, was um, Crown acquired another part of the land from the expansion of Chrysler, the where the city swap. gave them those mm-hmm. parcels and the land swap. Mm-hmm. And so this land swap deal keeps on giving. I think people were looking at Chrysler and not looking at the fact that the city needed 215 parcels. And I believe the parcel that um, Crown Enterprises owned was about 50 parcels. In response, the city gave them 261 parcels, including some in Cadillac Heights. And to see the land that the city is helping to convey to this private company with a known bad track record um, help displace people is really concerning to me. So, Donna, you're 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 drawing and making a parallel that uh, the the city helped give way to uh, Crown Enterprises to even to be in this situation and asking folks to to move out of their homes. Uh, I'll buy That's your home. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because when you when when they get a critical mass of property, it makes it easier for them to push other people out. I would mm. say I don't know if that's what you um um I, if you saw any of that, Jenna. But that seems to me as though giving a company a critical mass of property in that triangle helps to make the case for private um, persons to be pushed out. Right, and. Uh, Council member Scott Benson, who does represent the Cadillac Heights district, uh, voted in favor of the the Stellantis F- FCA land swap that oh, you yeah. mentioned. We're very yeah. familiar Don't with I know. that. <laughs> <laughs> We're very familiar with that. Jenna, talk to me a little bit about um, if you if you had conversations with residents on the block that took the deals. Uh, why did they take the deal? Uh, I guess it's a bit a bit of a mixed emotion mm-hmm. um, or reason. Like they have a strong tie to the neighborhood, but the, the deal was good, and I think ultimately this neighborhood has sort of been disinvested in for years. So it's sort of at the end of a end of this history, and it felt like the best option for those residents. But you know, when you talk to Savannah Lewis, she's like, "I'm 92. I am way too old to be moving. Like my whole life is in this home." Mm-hmm. Now, is ninety thousand dollars worth more than what her house is worth? Is it is it more than what her house is worth? Are they asking above market price for? those homes over there? I'm not sure exactly how much, but I I would say it's probably above market. You want to know what's funny? Um, The the spokesperson, Donna, going back to the parallel that you were drawing with the city sort of helping to, you know, lay this land where a crown enterprises can do this to certain people like Miss Lewis or other folks in neighborhoods. John Roach, a spokesman for the Detroit mayor, said the administration has not received any complaints about harassment, but said 
Anyone who feels that they may have been should reach out to Ray Solomon with the mayor's Department of Neighborhoods. Uh, what say you, Donna Givens Davidson? I mean, I think that's fine. You know, what, what will he do? Um, there have been complaints about many things that are happening inside of communities, and the city's response has not been, um, you know, the city has not really responded to those concerns. Um, I think, sure, respond, talk to Ray Solomon. Um, what, but, I mean, what, do, what is the power of the district manager, first of all? I know the, the district manager talks to all of these people, but um, Common Enterprises has this land. They have the tacit approval from the mayor. The mayor has recently said, hey, wait a minute, these guys have been doing good things lately. I know they have a bad past, but they're on the path to doing good things. Um, so I don't see it as being, um, there, I don't see that as a meaningful intervention. Mm, I don't either. You know? uh, can you talk a little bit about, Jenna, you know, what sort of qualifies as, you know, an intimidation tactic, right? Crown just leaving letters, knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what have you heard from your sources? Were they scared? Did they feel pressure? Yeah, I think just being given such short, um, tight terms of giving, being given three days to decide. You know, if you've been living somewhere for 60 years, that might be a hard decision to make in three days. And then having just a month to move out. And then, you know, some of them were saying that uh, when they express like, Push back when they push back on that, or you know, express that they didn't want to move. That the representatives from the company became like really short, and we're basically like, well, we're just going to build around you. It doesn't matter if you don't want to move. Like mm. we're going to do what we want to do. Sounds so familiar to me, Donna Givens Davis, and it sounds very familiar. So Crown Enterprises admits that they have made unsolicited offers to residents with proposed in air quotes, timelines in an attempt to buy parcels to prevent this trespassing Mm -hmm. that you are talking about. You spoke to uh, a representative from Crown Enterprises in your story, or did did you reach a spokesperson for Crown or anybody? Right, and they they said um, they don't have any immediate plans to develop beyond the concrete plant and that they want to prevent trespassing and, and blight. Did they have an answer about, you know, sort of like this crazy timeline of, you know, you got you have you have to decide in three days. And if you decide, yes, you got to move out in 30 days or something, you know, they basically said it was like normal to to present terms when making an offer. Mm, that's yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not making an offer to people you respect. <laughs> the people whose power exactly. you respect. Nobody says you take my offer. You got thirty days to use it. Look, use it. I'll just build around you. I mean, that's not um, even a respectful thing. You know, when you look at the process of the city negotiating land swaps and giving two hundred and sixty-one personal land to Crown Enterprises, did the city ever talk to any of the communities that would be impacted by them moving into their neighborhoods and? setting up these industries, the city just Mm-mm. say, well, we've got these vacant parcels here and we can use this to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've got this monopoly game and you are on the purple properties, you know, when you pass, um, you know, start right after you collect $200 mm-hmm. properties that have really no value and no negotiating power. So we don't really have to talk to these people. It just really speaks to something. And it, it's very personal, obviously, because our organization at Eastside Community Network is, adjacent to or just you know i think 500 yards you are encased not not really adjacent you are literally encased right 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 you know and the city never came and talked to us and asked us our hopes dreams or anything 
there was a three-week community benefits process, and we weren't allowed to be part of it. Um, so that was bad enough. And then I look up, and Crown Enterprises is this great big trucking depot on Jefferson replacing grassy lots with cement and trucks and more truck traffic to an area that needs less and no notice or explanation given. And so it feels like Crown Enterprises can function as a bad actor with the city's approval, getting land from the city, from deals that the city sets up that don't necessarily get the kind of input from residents. Yeah, so it's, absent, it's absent a real democratic process. And folks would say we have, you know, this community benefits ordinance that allows for a neighborhood advisory committee to sort of influence. But those neighborhood advisory committees are heavily political. And most of the people, the re- people who are on those neighborhood advisory committees are appointed by politicians, right, who have a perspective and view of what they want to see and not disappoint the other piece the other piece of that that piece of uh, legislation is that it 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 completely marginalizes organizations and businesses who are also in the footprint Eastside Community Network is literally encased Mm -hmm. in FCA Mm -hmm. and Eastside Community Network could not participate in the neighborhood advisory committee meetings as an organization and neither could other businesses. That is a huge, huge miss, right? Especially for organizations and businesses who are advocate organizations and who have become institutions and neighborhood anchors in neighborhoods like Cadillac Heights. What what organization is speaking up on behalf of a Savannah Lewis in this in this instance, right? Yeah, the Great Lakes Environmental Law Center um, is advocating for them trying to build a case against the Maroons and is has even partnered with a real estate company to offer services uh, for residents in the community to try and, you know, sort of negotiate the best deal for themselves um, if they're not going to go through the company. And, uh, you know, the Environmental Law Center has also been involved in, like, the FCA stuff and U.S. Ecology and a number of other. Yeah, yeah. Nick Leonard is, is awesome. He does a great job supporting um, this work. And so we really appreciate um, all that he does and so many other people in the fight for, you know, the kind of justice that you want to see. You want to make sure that if you're going to give people a fair deal for their land, they have time to consider it. Moving a 90-year-old is no joke. Right. Um, so and, what did she know, say? Times, what did, did, what did, did she decide to move? What is she going to do? I think her daughter said she was going to move her, didn't she? Right. Yeah, she told the company no, but, you know, like she literally will be the only one left on her block. So uh, in the mm-hmm. spring, they, they plan to move her in with her daughter. Mm. And Scott Benson says uh, in the article that his office wasn't aware of Lewis's contact attempts and has not received any complaints from residents. I I I find that highly problematic. I <laughs> uh, for a sitting city council person to have a resident, an institutional resident like a Savannah Lewis. Mm-hmm. And for that, for for that story and for that complaint to sort of just be brushed out, oh, we weren't aware. How are you not you know, aware? If I was a city council person, and I will never be one, um, but if I was a city council person and somebody brought that to my attention, my response would be, let me reach out and talk to them and find out what's going on. Rather than I haven't heard anything, let me intentionally do something to make sure I understand it. If I was a mayor, and I never will be, I would say, let me send my people over there and talk to the residents to make sure they're okay. 
That's what happens when you have a government that is working for you and on your behalf as opposed to a government that is just waiting for the, the noise to die down so things can go back to normal. I, um, and I think that's very disappointing. I mean, I thought that the point of having counsel by districts is to have better representation and more in-touch government. Most people do not speak to their council people every day, but if a council person hears there's an issue, I think they have a responsibility to ask. Right. He does have a staff, doesn't he? And I don't know if it was Benson or, or the mayor off the top of my head, but but they did say that they would reach out to, to Miss Lewis and hear her concerns. You know, they were really concerned about it. But I spoke with her over the weekend and she said no one had reached out to her. So how is... How how is go ahead, Donna. I'm sorry. Go on. I'm sorry. How was she affording the move if she didn't sell the house to them? Is the house on the market or is like, what is she going to do? She's going to work with the real estate company that the Great Lakes Environmental Law Center is, is working with to, to put it on the market. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so put it on the market. I mean, it, but I mean, it's not going to really sell to anybody either because by the time this is done, the value of the property is almost zero. So it makes it um, difficult. Definitely. And that is a point that Andrew at the law center brought up is that, you know, for a lot of Americans buying a home is this path mm-hmm. of wealth or building generational wealth. But in Detroit, that's not necessarily something that you can count on for a lot of black homeowners like Savannah Lewis. Mm. I'm reading the article and I'm reading a quote from Vince. And I just want to see if this is a quote you're referring to where he says, if people are intimidating people to try to sell property, that's problematic. He said his office has been closely following Crown's work to make sure that our residents are protected. Um, I don't see in here where he is promising to um, connect with them. He said that in some other quote. It was Benson or the mayor's office that that said, you know, we weren't aware of this, but now that we are, we're going to make sure to follow up. Actually, it was Benson. I gave Benson her number. Her number. Wow. Oh, okay. And she has not been contacted yet. Right. All right. For those of you who live in District 3, (laughs) take take note um, about the representation that, you know, that resides there. Are there any environmental concerns regarding this concrete facility uh, that is rising to the top? Yeah, so uh, this concrete facility was constructed, went into operation in September. Um, you know, concrete is one of the leading causes of, of air pollution in the country, and it emits harmful sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, carbon monoxide, and it can travel up to two miles. There's a number of neighborhoods in the in the area, and, you know, the, there are homes literally across the street from the concrete facility. So mm-hmm. definitely there are a number of residents that will be affected by the emissions from this plant. All right. Listen, we are going to take another break. This is our last break for the podcast, and we are going to be right back. Keep it locked. Thank you, Jenna. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the East Side have access to exclusive services in the Wellness Network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org.
Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroiters rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters. For Detroiters. All right, welcome back to Authentically Detroit. Listen, uh, before before we head out today, uh, it's been about a week and a half since uh, the Detroit City Council approved uh, a $7.1 million contract to expand ShotSpotter, the sound surveillance technology that promises to alert uh, the police authorities when shots go off to sort of directly pinpoint where those shots are coming from, right? Um, it, it passed uh, by a, a five to four vote. Donna, we've been talking about this for a while. Um, react to this. <laughs> Uh, I think we have um, a different type of shot spotter that has not been working very well. Um, that's when you hear gunshots or you see dangerous things, call 911 and wait for the police to respond. Um, because people who are um, present when crimes are in process are certainly better equipped to, um, to report something than after the guns have been shot. And we talk to our neighbors, and most of them talk about very slow, non-responsive policing. I don't understand the purpose of shot spotters, so maybe I need to sit through a seminar so someone can understand this technology to me. Because what I understand is you hear a gunshot and you drive to the area and the police will get there and, um, and hopefully the criminal who shot the gun is going to be standing there still with the gun in hand waiting for the police to get there. But the, fact, the, the criminal is staying you, there and waiting. They, He's, they're well, waiting. I mean, that that that, but you know, so very few criminals have been apprehended using this brilliant technology. Well, what can happen is another person could be walking down the street and in the vicinity of where that gunshot was heard, and that person could be criminalized or treated like a suspect simply because of their presence. And maybe they look a little bit like a thug or whatever it is. Police use to profile people. And so what has happened has been an increase in aggressive policing. That's where you don't have a formal stop and frisk policy. But if your gun, gun has been shot, you're trying to see who did it. You see somebody who fits a profile. Are you going to pat them down to make sure they didn't shoot the gun? Um, I, I think it's problematic. And I think that, you know, that we, we're getting away from people talk about community policing being the most effective policing. To the extent police presence is ever useful, I don't think this is it. Well, you want to know what was particularly shocking to me is sort of paying attention to all of the comments on the public record uh, when Shot Spider was being debated for weeks by the city council and the overwhelming amount of public record comments were in dissent of Shot Spider, right? Um, and for this to pass was was shocking. I think the 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 other thing that I want to sort of uplift is you know uh, city 
city councilwoman for District 4, Letitia Johnson, sent out um, a, a shot, sort of a flyer that, you know, touted what Shot Spider was supposed to do, right? Without any information on its efficacy, without any information about why people are dissenting. It was literally a flyer that, you know, touted what Shot Spider is supposed to do in preventing and intervening on on crimes. And then this flyer linked out to a survey. Um and I forget, it was maybe two or three questions on the survey. Without any real education around this technology, what it's supposed to do, where it's supposed to go, and how police are supposed to interact with it, just asking if residents sort of agreed with uh, this technology or not, I found it abominable. And I found it really irresponsible for a sitting city council person to send out such information without any context and without um, any education around it. And so I'm, I'm still struggling to figure out how this measure actually passed when I know the overwhelming amount of public record, right, was a dissent, right? And so city council members can argue about what they've been hearing in neighborhoods, but it had, is, is that for public record? Right. All of that's yeah. anecdotal. Right. I mean, is is I, that real? Actually, I took the time to fill out the survey and the very next day the vote was held. I don't know if there were any community meetings held. I certainly wasn't invited to them. I have to be really honest because this one hurt on a personal level because this is um, one of us, you know, who's representing us on city council. And I felt misrepresented. I honestly felt like, wow, my opinion doesn't matter. Um, I, I wonder whether people get to city council and decide that uh, people in the communities that elected them to office aren't smart enough to really understand the issues and that they have to um, think beyond what we think so that good things can happen in the city. But that hurt on a very visceral level when I read that vote. I'm, I'll be honest with you, and I'm not the only person. Um, when city council was elected, there was so much hope that this was going to be a difference. But honestly, this same vote could have taken place last year. Yeah. So uh, let me let me run down uh, how people voted. Uh, the no votes were Council President Mary Sheffield, Council Member Gabriela Santiago Romero, Council Member uh, Mary Waters, and Council Member Angela Whitfield Calloway. Um, the the yes votes were uh, James Tate, Coleman Young, Fred Durhall, um, Scott Benson. Letitia Johnson, right? Um, which which was which is really shocking because I I, I know that um, it's diametrically opposed to the views that you know folks who were campaigning for her, <laughs> like hitting the pavement for her, uh, wanted to see. So I'm wondering, like, how? I guess another question is, how does this kind of position, you know, sort of um, affect the person? And their ability to remain um, in in communication uh, with 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 the electorate and what the electorate really really wants, because I I, I really find the passing of this legislation very odd, Donna. Mm-hmm. So what's the what's, yeah. what's the imperative? Right. I mean, I just I think that, you know, when you elect somebody to political office, um, you still have to hold them accountable to 
whatever kind of political promises and also to expectations that you have for political representatives for your community. And um, so I think that um, there will be some communication back. I mean, I, right now I'm just trying to digest it because um, why would you even ask me my opinion if it didn't matter? And mm-hmm. that's the way it felt. And so... And the framing um, of this, right? I think, I think the fight was being framed as, hey, the fight is against using ARPA money for this, yeah. right? It's, it's not about money. It's about aggressive policing. It's about, you know, shoot, um, you know, the kind of policing that people keep saying they want to see, and then they keep putting more money in other things. If you want to see officers actually develop relationships with people in neighborhoods to prevent crime, because ShotSpotter cannot prevent a single crime because the, the police come after the, the, you know, shooting happens. And what can happen is, okay, if we feel like the policing is going to be intense here, we're going to go somewhere else, I guess. Um, so it can displace, you know, criminals into other places. But, you know, the question is, why are people engaging in criminal behavior? And we know there's a lot of trauma and brokenness in our community. We understand why there's a lot of trauma and brokenness in the community, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it is all these kids in the foster care system, out of home, in places where parents are, whether it's substance abuse on parents. There's so many issues and untreated mental illness on part of parents, and it becomes intergenerational. And somebody's got to get in there and say, let's try to help these people not get into a position where they're out there, you know, firing off guns. But um, <laughs> what, is shot spotter, what is Shot Spider doing? What I keep hearing people say is, okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. We all know that. But in the meantime, let's just stop the crime as if what we're doing is going to stop it. Mm. My question is, what is ShotSpider doing that people with phones ain't already doing, right? Like, exactly. it, what, what's the difference between, like, you know, the, the, the audio equipment picking up a shot versus a resident calling and say, hey, I'm hearing gunshots at such and such. You know, it's, 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 it's really crazy. So ShotSpider's network of microphones are already used in 6.48 square miles of the 8th and 9th precincts on the city's far west and east sides, respectively. The new contract will expand ShotSpider to 31.8 square miles in portions of the city with high levels of gun violence. The contract takes immediate effect and expires June 30, 2026. Right? We need to have Tawana Petty on here. I need to hear from my good sister who can explain some of this stuff to us because this um, hyper-surveillance of our community has not reduced crime in neighborhoods where people are struggling. It's um, it has yep. done none of that. And so I think that we really need to hear from people who have expertise in this area and help outline what some of the, the problems are. I know, um, again, when I first heard of shots, but I was like, well, anything to stop gun violence. And that's a desperation feel that some people have, but the reality is it doesn't. Mm. And so we need to work within a real system of uh, what's happening and as opposed to pie in the sky, wait a minute, what if, you know, <laughs> what if people stop shooting guns? Um, mm-hmm. It's not, it, I don't, I don't see it's hap- happening. So All right. If Tawana funny. Petty were here, she would say surveillance ain't safety. Tawana Petty, you have an open invitation to come on authentically Detroit. Yeah, we're going to reach out. I, yeah. I'm going to reach out. I really want to hear from her um, and maybe even bring on Eric Williams and we'll ask him about that. Uh, Cause I know that he's been doing some of that work as well for the justice center, but I think it's important that we, um, really start trying to disentangle what all of this means, all of the surveillance activity means for 
lived experience of Detroiters. Yep, and Councilwoman Letitia Johnson, if you if you want to come on and explain why uh, your vote was a yes, uh, we we are happy to explore yeah. that and have um, a conversation with you. You're more than welcome, as always, as you've Truly. always been welcome. Um, all right, if you have more topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. All right, now it's time for shout-outs. Let's start with you, Donna. Do you have any shout-outs? Yeah. Um, shout out to all the people who voted no on Shot Spotter. <laughs> 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 all the women on City Council, both the Marys, Gabriella, and Angela Whitfield-Calloway, thank you for um, sending to your principles. I also want to shout out Sarita Scott and Ken Coleman, who joined me in a housing justice workshop. Oh, yeah. Right? How did that go? And it was a lot of fun. We just ran out of time. So many issues to be discussed. And I told both of them, I really want you to come on Authentically Detroit so we can finish this conversation. So I hope to hear from them soon. Uh, we have so many people who've been writing in and wanting to come on Authentically Detroit. That's such an honor, you know? It is. Um, so it's, it's trying to figure out how and when we can do this is our new problem. Um, but, but, I mean, I really want to have them on soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah? Uh, Jenna, you have any shout outs? Oh, shout out to you guys for holding it down with the podcast and having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and hear more and your perspectives on these these contentious issues. Anytime. Thank you for coming on. You know who I want to shout out, Donna Givers Davison? I mm-hmm. want to shout out Alex B. Hill. Um, if you have not listened to our episode last week uh, featuring Alex, go back and listen to it. Um, I, I, I was really, we, first off, we got to have him back on, but what, what a great conversation we had last week, Donna, with Alex. Mm-hmm. I found it, yeah. uh, really palpable and, you know, to draw, uh, the, the intersection of, you know, mapping with narrative storytelling. It was, it was really threaded, uh, beautifully go back. If you missed last week, I also want to shout out, uh, Detroit public television. I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be on TV this week. Y'all. So, uh, be sure to tune into this week's episode of American black journal, where I sit down for a one-on-one with, um, departing CEO of forgotten harvest, Kirk Mays to talk about his future plans and so you guys make sure you tune in to uh, American Black Journal um, every Tuesday and Sunday on our PBS affiliate here in the city of Detroit uh, Detroit Public Television and lastly I want to shout out all of uh, this this is this shout out is inspired by Chase Cantrell. All of the amazing twenty somethings doing great things here in the city of Detroit. Jerwan Howard, Davon Reeder, Natalia Henderson, like all all of Jenna Brooker, hey. right? Malachi Bear, all of these amazing. Uh, Natalia. Naomi Cawthorn. Naomi Cawthorn. Um, Ian yeah. McCain. Yeah. Um, all the twenty something. Davon Reader, we have quite a few on our staff. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of great 20-somethings in Detroit. Yeah, pay attention to them, y'all. Until then, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Catch the wave. <laughs>